Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. Uh, between the singing this morning and screaming at Jake's fight last night, I hope to get through this thing with my voice. The book of Jonah. We're going to be looking this morning at Jonah chapter 1. I'm actually going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. So would you please stand as we read God's Word. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and authoritative Word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's pray. Father, even as we hear these words read, we are reminded that we are unworthy servants. We are unworthy servants to even have received this word, these oracles, this word from heaven 
to have it even in our own language. We thank you for your mercy towards us, even in giving us Bibles that we might hear from you this morning. And we thank you for this great privilege of being able to come together under your word, and we ask, Lord, that you would indeed help us to hear and understand and and to believe and to obey your word this morning. We pray that this would be true even for the leaders that you have appointed for us. We pray that they would come under the word and obey it. We pray for the churches each represented at the Simeon workshop this week. We ask, Lord, that you would, you would cause your word to go forth this morning in great power and bring about a great awakening among your people. We thank you for this church and for your, your hand of mercy even through the great tumultuous season that we've been through. In many ways, still feel like we are in. And so we look to you for help for assistance, for wisdom in the days ahead. We ask for wisdom from above. We ask for unity. We ask for even a spiritual resolve to stand firm against our flesh and the schemes of the evil one that would seek to bring us down. For those who are suffering here, even today, whether it be with health issues, with relational strife and dissension, with the prospect of job loss, whatever it might be, would your word give great comfort to us even as we behold the exceedingly deep and wide mercy of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you've you've got your bulletin there, you see the title, Johnny Cash and Jonah. Everybody's been asking me, what in the blue blazes are you thinking, man? Well, I'll admit, it's been a long week, so I, I needed a little bit of comedic relief for myself. But actually, it was Johnny Cash's song, the famous song, The Ring of Fire, uh, that did stand out to me as I thought of Jonah chapter 1. In many ways, you could look at Johnny Cash's life as a whole. That famous song, the refrain, I went down, 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 and the flames went higher. Of course, it's a love song. This isn't so much a love song. But I thought it actually fits quite well with this first chapter in the book of Jonah. You see there in the text... In verse 3, in verse 5, there's one word, one word to describe, I think, the overall trajectory that Jonah is on here. You see it, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it. And then if you look there in verse 5, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. And all of this, then, is going to climax in Jonah chapter 2, verse 6. Jonah has been tossed into the sea, and he prays from the 
From the deeps, he says, at the roots of the mountains in chapter 2, verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Of course, this is a word describing Jonah's actual physical movements. But the book of Jonah is a, is a very uniquely structured book. There's a lot of artistic ability shown within this book. And I think there's a bit of a play on words here that we're actually to see that Jonah's life is one that warns us against the tendency to spiritual decline. The tendency to spiritual decline. It's a picture. It's a warning. Jonah serves as really a mirror for the people of God to look at and see, are we like Jonah? Are we like Jonah? And if we're honest with ourselves, we've all been like Jonah. Maybe some of you right now are like Jonah. It's a picture and a warning about the dangers of spiritual decline. Contrast this then with God's purposes for his people, which is not decline, but it is progress. Onward and upward. This past week, as Pastor Clint alluded to, we had 35 men, pastors, ministry leaders, and training gathered here for three days at the Simeon Workshop. We were here to work on our preaching skills together. We actually worked through the book of Jonah and Nahum. So now you see why Clint preached through Nahum and why I'm preaching through Jonah, because we've been going through it anyway. As we work through it, though, one of the things, one of the emphases this week was that we're not here because we want to be perfect preachers, but because we want to strive to make progress. We're striving to make our progress evident to all. And that's, of course, the mark of the Christian life. It's one of progress, of growth upward to Christ's likeness, obedience, faithfulness. But the reality is, is that we are all prone to spiritual decline. And if we're not corrected, if we don't turn away from that, if we're, if we're not aware of it, if we don't get some sort of an antidote to that, then it's going to bring us down. It's going to bring us down. Maybe even to death. Simply stated, the book of Jonah, many of you are familiar with it. It's a common book. Most of you probably read it during Sunday school. You probably had it displayed on the flannel graph, right? Jonah. And everybody's wondering, was it a whale? Was it a fish? Well, next week we'll... I don't think we'll answer that question, but we'll look at it. It's a, it's a familiar book. But as I said, the book of Jonah actually functions for us this morning as a mirror. As James says, the Word of God is like a mirror that we are to look into. And when we look into it, we're not supposed to just stare at it and then walk away unchanged. We're actually supposed to look at it and ask ourselves, where would you have me change, Lord? Jonah is a mirror by which we examine our own lives before God's face. See, Jonah, he's trying to flee from the presence of God, but the reality is we can't. We all live before the face of God. There's nowhere to hide. And so we're, we're seeking here then to, to understand how we live before God in a way that is appropriate, that is true, that is right, that is in accordance with his will. See, the Lord's gracious salvation is the focal point. It's not Jonah. It's not the fish. It's not even the Ninevites. 
The focal point in this book is the Lord. The theme verse is in chapter 2, verse 9, I believe. The end of chapter 2, where Jonah cries out, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And as we work our way through Jonah, we're going to see all these different dimensions, looking at the salvation of the Lord from all these different angles, in order then to create within us hearts that begin to look more like God's heart for sinners. That's, I think, what we need. We're going to see the exceedingly deep and wide mercy of God towards sinners who deserve hell. The book of Nahum, Pastor Glenn's been going through, was a book about God's judgment and the great comfort that believers take in the fact that he is going to deal with their enemies. The book of Jonah emphasizes the exceedingly deep and wide mercy of God for Ninevites, but also for you and me. Taken together, both Jonah and Nahum highlight the fullness of the truth that is expressed in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, a very important passage in the Old Testament, where we basically get a definition of who the Lord is. You know, the Lord equals, and this is what Exodus 34 says, He is a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We're going to see that theme repeated over and over and over in the book of Jonah. So we have to remember, who was the book of Jonah written to? Well, it was written to the people of God, Israel. Written in Hebrew. And, and when they read the book of Jonah, they were not to be those who were casting their stones, but as I said, they were to see themselves as they looked at Jonah. Israel was to see themselves and to see, oh yeah, we're actually a lot more like Jonah. And they were to take note. They were to take note. It's good for us then to take a good, long look at ourselves in the mirror as we even reflect on Jonah and his spiritual decline that we might be warned and actually do the opposite of what Jonah. This morning, as we consider Jonah's spiritual decline, we're going to look at two responses, two responses that I believe counteract the tendency towards spiritual decline. Or you can think of this as, as an antidote, in a sense, to spiritual decline. Is this, we must stop running from God. And secondly, we must wake up to God's power and His peace. Stop running from God and wake up to God's power and peace. Well, first of all, we see there, the very beginning, this book opens in a very common way in many ways. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Jonah has become this proverbial figure of the running prophet, right? You said, don't be a Jonah. Don't run from God's will. You know, you tell your Tell your teen children, don't be Jonah, don't run. And there's some wisdom in that. But we see here that Jonah actually was a prophet. He was a prophet. We don't know much about Jonah himself. 
The only other place where Jonah is referenced, other than the New Testament, the only other place in the Old Testament where he's referenced is in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, where it states there that he was a prophet who lived during the reign of King Jeroboam. And this was about 792 to 753. So think of this. It's about 100 years before the book of Nahum okay, was written. And only a few decades before Israel was going to be taken captive by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. So in 2 Kings 14, we read that Jeroboam, the king, restored the border of Israel. This is 2 Kings 14, verse 25. He restored the border of Israel for Lebo Hamath, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. So Jonah had the great privilege of actually prophesying during a time of great prosperity and expansion. He, he lived during, a, you know, Jeroboam wasn't a good guy, but he actually lived during, during the expansion of Israel's land. The economy was booming, we could say. And yet, in the back of Jonah's mind, he knew, because God had, because God had already spoken and said, he's going to take his people Israel into exile. And who is he going to use? Ah, yeah, those Assyrians. They're going to be the agent of his justice against his disobedient people. But Jonah, here this prophet, we have to see here, as we consider the exceedingly deep and wide mercy of God, we have to see God's kindness even on display here in these very opening words. Because the very fact that Jonah had access to God's word meant that he was in a very privileged class. Everybody wants to talk about privilege these days. Jonah was in a privileged class. He heard the word of the Lord. He knew God's will for his life. He was among the prophets who received God's word and then were commissioned to speak that word to God's people. And we see here something of, of even the mission of the prophets, the mission of God's people even back in the Old Testament. Yes, they were to be a uniquely distinct people. God's people, Israel, was to be distinct, a light to the nations. They were to be distinct in their devotion to the Lord, their obedience to Him. But there was also this dimension of, of going and telling. And Jonah here was commissioned to go and to speak. He had the word of the Lord come to him, go, call out against Nineveh, for their evil has come up before me. Those of us who have the Word of God are truly privileged. I, I mean, it's, it's something, this is why I think our church history series is something that's good to go through. To remember that for most of church history, people didn't have access to this. It, it was all dependent on maybe the preacher. Maybe there, maybe there was one kind of Bible in the community. Certainly didn't have multiple translations of it. But for us who have then this access to God's word, we, we truly are in a privileged position. And with this great blessing comes great responsibility. A great responsibility. We really do see in the book of Jonah, God's heart for the nations. His desire that his word would go forward. That Jonah would go call out against Nineveh and warn them of the coming judgment. And of course, we can think there then of Jesus' great commission. I think that's an appropriate place to go. That we are called to go to the nations, 
to make disciples of all the nations. This great privilege of having the word comes with great responsibility to speak the word. Just notice something else interesting here. The fact that Jonah is told to go to Nineveh, why? Because their evil has come up before him. So yes, Jonah had the privilege of of having God's word in his language. The Ninevites didn't. I mean, they were basically in the dark. They didn't have the Old Testament. They didn't have the Torah. And yet, God holds them accountable. God holds them accountable. He's going to judge them for their evil. And so it is that God will hold all people accountable. Yes, according to the light of revelation that they have, there's the light of revelation in nature, Paul talks about. But for those, the spotlight here really is actually on Jonah, isn't it? Jonah should know better. He's got the word, and it's clear. It's very clear. See, not only do we have a responsibility to speak the word, we actually have, first and foremost, a responsibility before the Lord to obey his word. To obey his word. So as we look in this Jonah mirror, we're taught that if we're going to avoid spiritual decline, we've actually got to stop running from God's word. Jonah runs from God's word. He's told, go to Nineveh. And then the next words that come on this page are, but Jonah rose. It's a very dangerous thing when you see a command of God says, go do this, and then you hear, but they did this. That is a perfect description of sin, of rebellion. You'd think that Jonah would be excited to go to Nineveh. It's like, okay, the Lord's telling him, go there, call out against these people. Awesome, I get to go throw a a hellfire and brimstone at these people. I hate them anyway. Why not? Well, the reason why Jonah doesn't go is because we're actually told in Jonah chapter 4, if you flip over there, Jonah chapter 4, is that Jonah knew his Bible. Jonah knew his Bible. He knew that passage in Exodus 34 that we read. And he says in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah didn't want to go because he knew that if he would go there and if the Ninevites repented, that God would actually show mercy. And he could not stand the thought of God showing mercy to these people who were going to come destroy Israel. These wicked enemies. We don't have to go into the whole catalog of evils. Pastor Clint went through that in the book of Nahum. They were a wicked people. And so Jonah has this emotional response, probably a response that you and I would have too, if we're being honest. Them? I'm not going there. I know that you'll show mercy, so I'm just... I'm not going to go. And he flees. And of course, Jonah can't claim here, oh, well, you know, Lord, it was a little bit unclear, your instructions. Right? No, they were abundantly clear, as, uh, as Sinclair Ferguson put it. He said, Jonah didn't have to go get out his commentaries, get out his lexicon, get out all his books and consult like, oh, what, what's the grammatical structure of this? It's like, no, no, it's very obvious. Get off your rear end and go to Nineveh. 
and Jonah does the opposite. Maybe you're beginning even here to, to see even how Jonah's disobedience maybe is exposing patterns in your own life. God's word comes to you, it's very clear, and yet you choose disobedience. See, brothers and sisters, the first step of spiritual decline is always marked by running from God's word. Look at someone who's on the downward slope and then look at how they're dealing with the scriptures and you'll find that they're actually just running. You know, they get all caught up on all sorts of the, you know, you know I'm, I'm trying to, it's, it's a little bit difficult to figure out. No, it's not. It's very clear. It's very clear. Oh, well, you know, biblical sexuality, we're not quite, maybe we need to look at it from a different cultural angle. No, it's very clear. It's abundantly clear. See, our issues are not with the confusing passages. We do a very poor job of obeying the very clear ones. The issue, as it was for Jonah and as it is for us, is that oftentimes God's commands conflict with our own desires, don't they? We have something we want, some emotional tie to something. It's like, yeah, but I I love that, so mm, maybe I can play some hermeneutical gymnastics with this very clear word, or maybe I just clearly disregard it altogether. God's word must govern our steps not our emotions, not our passions. But not only does Jonah flee from the word of God, he also tries to flee from the presence of God. Of course, in an ultimate sense, this is impossible. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. There is no space where God does not exist. Jonah would have known Psalm 139, which says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And so you'd, you'd come to Jonah and be like, man, do you, do you realize that like, what you're trying to do is pretty much like going ice climbing with bowling shoes? I, don't, I mean, I don't go ice climbing, but I imagine ice climbing with bowling shoes is just an absolute exercise in futility. I'm going to go away from the Lord. I'm, I'm going to flee from his presence. Well, in one sense, that's impossible, and, and you can't flee from God's presence either. Neither can I. But there is a sense in which we can flee from God's presence in terms of our experience. Uh, to run from the presence of God is then to actively set aside any awareness of his presence, of his authority over you and over me, and what it does is it erodes true relational intimacy between you and the Lord. So though in reality you actually can't run from God, he sees all that you're doing, those who have known the Lord and who have his word, another sign of spiritual decline is that you're, you're running. You, you, you don't think of God. He's not on your mind. Your instinct isn't to think, ah, yeah, but what would God have me do? What does he think about this? And it erodes this true relational intimacy. So we see Jonah fleeing. 
He gets on the ship. He's going down. He pays the fare. I think it's quite interesting that Jonah, as he flees, you, you kind of got to think through the eyes of some of these sailors for a minute. These sailors, they didn't know what Jonah was doing initially. They thought to themselves, well, I mean, whatever, this has got some guy, he probably just needs to go on business to Tarshish. At least he's being fair. He's paying his fare. He's not a stowaway, right? He's, he's actually doing what he should be. He's doing things legally. And yet Jonah was on the run from the Lord. It's a reminder and it's a caution that you can be an upstanding, law-abiding citizen, an honest businessman, a family man. You can be the fun parent and do all the fun things, and you can still be in spiritual decline. You might be able to hide your sins from others, but as the saying goes, you can run, but you can't hide from God. Now, I think that this warning of spiritual decline is actually very appropriate for us at this particular juncture. We've all been worn down over the last two years with basically warlike tensions. We've been through war. We've got scars. We've got uncertainties. We've had pressures to perform, pressures to maintain relationships. And the challenge that we're going to face is that it's going to be very easy and it's going to be very enticing and even seductive for us to take the easy route and then indulge, just to indulge our fleshly appetites. You know, we've had it so hard. I'm done with that. It's too hard. So I'm going to be basically spiritually lazy and indulge. And what's come to my mind in particular, just thinking about my own life, thinking about the church, our church, is I think in particular there's a need to be on guard for our marriages. For our marriages. Again, God's word is very clear about what marriage is to look like. God's word is very clear about these things. Now you think about the original audience here. Israel was actually going to be judged because of their immorality. Right? That's why the Assyrians were coming. They were committing spiritual adultery which was tied to all sorts of sexual immorality. That's the original situation that these people were in. And they were to have a warning. Don't run from God. You need to return back to Him. There's a warning for us as we think of Johnny Cash and Jonah and going down, down, down. What came to mind was Proverbs 7. Kind of a weird passage when you think of how in the world is that tied to Jonah? Well, Solomon there in Proverbs 7, as you know, he warns his son. He's got all these sorts of lectures that he's given to his son, warning him about the dangers that he's going to face out there and giving him instructions for how to navigate life in a way that is wise and in accordance with God's word. And Jonah, or Solomon rather, warns his son about the seductiveness of a woman who stands to entice him into sexual immorality. And notice what he says in Proverbs 7, 27. He says, her house is the way to Sheol. Going down to the chambers of death. Down. 
Sin leads down, and if you're not careful, it leads down to death. Maybe you say, well, that's not a temptation for you at that point, or at this point. Well, well then what is a temptation for you? Where is it? I mean, you've got to take an honest assessment right now before God about where are you tempted to slide? Where are you not in alignment with God's word? Jonah probably wasn't thinking that he was going to be a prophet on the run from God. You know, I'm guessing maybe three months earlier, he was thinking everything was maybe going fine. Then all of a sudden, he finds himself in the bottom of this boat running from God. I mean, that's how quick sin gets us. So we've got to beware of the double life, and we've got to stop running from God's word and his presence. There's a second warning, though, for us in Jonah's spiritual decline, and it's this, that we've got to wake up. We've got to wake up to God's power and his peace. See, Jonah's disobedience has almost immediate repercussions. You see that there, beginning in verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. So the Lord brings about this, this great storm. I mean, it must have been terrifying because even these experienced sailors were freaked out. I mean, these are guys that they know how to navigate the sea, and yet there it says in verse 5, the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship in the sea to lighten it for them. I mean, this was valuable cargo. This is how they're going to feed their families. They're chucking it overboard like, okay, we're freaked out. We're going to die here. So we're just doing anything that we can. What we see here, I think a very important principle. Though our sins are first and foremost against God, even as David says in Psalm 51, our sins are never done in isolation. You, you need to note this. Your sins, even the hidden sins, like Jonah's, they negatively affect everybody around you. They negatively affect everybody around you. Your wife, your husband, your children, your church, even unbelievers. That's why all sin is fundamentally a violation of the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. When you sin, you're breaking both of them. Jonah's sin brings about the judgment of God. Now what's important here is to see who's actually running the show. Who's running the show? Well, it's the Lord. He's the one who hurled the wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest upon the sea. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, even as Jonah confesses there in Jonah verse Jonah 1 verse 9, he said, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. It is not fate that has brought these sailors to where they are, nor is it fate that has brought Jonah to where he is, but God is behind it all, working his purposes. He has designed it. He is in control of the wind and the waves, even hurling them at this point on this particular sea with these particular people. And he's doing it to literally shake these people to their senses. He's going to shake the sailors from their fear of death then to an exceedingly great fear of the Lord that we're going to see. It's a reminder that we can disobey God's revealed will. We can go contrary to his will. And yet, God's 
ultimate will still proceeds. We're going to see that the gospel is going to get to Nineveh. The Lord's going to deal with Jonah. And even the Lord's going to bring about, even through the disobedience of Jonah, he's going to use that and ordain that to bring about the salvation of these pagan sailors. I mean, the, the hands and the, of providence are all over this book. This is God's world. He is accomplishing his purposes. He is even using this judgment against Jonah to bring about the salvation of these sailors. See, every storm, every trial, every fish, even the lots that were cast that exposed who it was that is guilty, all of this is from the hand of God. All creation is under his authority. He controls everything from subatomic particles even to the hearts of the people represented here. See, the storm on this sea was a type of judgment on Jonah for his sins. In the Jewish mind, the sea was a terrifying place. There's a reason why Israel didn't have a navy. Uh, The sea was a place of chaos and destruction and judgment. And you can think back to the flood. It was a terrifying place. And so even the fact that the Lord is churning up the sea, it is a great picture of judgment against Jonah for his sins. And in a proper sense, I believe we can say every frightening instance is designed by God to turn us from our wicked ways, that he would turn us from our fear of death to him. He's he's trying to get their attention. The sailors, of course, we saw that, how do they respond? Well, they take the old foxhole religion approach, don't they? It's like they're being shelled, right? They're they're afraid that they're going to die. So, what do they do? Well, it's time to get religious. Let's call out to our God. You, you call out to yours. You call out to yours. Maybe one of them will listen to us. Now, well, that doesn't work, so let's chuck the cargo. I mean, we can understand something of what these sailors were going through. They were trying to save their lives, and yet all was in vain. It was futile. But there's another equally wrong response. Where's Jonah. Jonah, verse 5, had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Jonah, the prophet, is down here in the hull of the ship and he's not down there chewing on his nails because he's so afraid. No, he's like your grandpa after Christmas dinner. He's sawing logs. I mean, you think, like, what is, what is up with this guy? I mean, people debate, oh, was he really tired? Maybe he was just exhausted. No, I, I think he was, he was a man that was wrongly at peace. His conscience was wrongly at peace. He thought, whatever. He kind of turns into a bit of a nihilist. Hmm. Whatever. I've run this far anyway. I'll just catch a few few moments of shut-eye. What a decline that we see in Jonah. Oh, Christian, it's a great thing to be able to to go to sleep in the midst of the storm. And if you're a Christian, you you legitimately can. It's all the trials of life. We're going to see that next week. 
but a dull conscience is a dangerous thing. The more you run, the more insensitive to God you become. Your spiritual life literally begins to shut down, and you, you end up, like Jonah, kind of being comatose. You're insensitive to God's word. It doesn't prick you. I mean, if you're, if you're not feeling convicted by God's word as you're reading it, if the last two years hasn't exposed any sins, it might mean that you've been asleep. You've been asleep, and you need to be awakened. The Lord's trying to get a hold of you and to teach you. Of course, the sailors were wrong in their idolatry and their attempts to, to assuage the judgment of God by their own efforts, but we can at least say that they were consistent with their own pagan religion, and they even showed some zeal. But Jonah's like a sloth. He's asleep. He has no sensitivity to the things of God. It's an indictment on him. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6, as we think of this spiritual slumber, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. We've got to wake up. We've got to be on the alert. We've got to cry out to God, even if we're feeling that our consciences aren't being pricked, we're not being convicted, the word isn't maybe cutting as it needs to, we've got to ask the Lord then to restore that sensitivity to him. We don't need to grow bored with his word. We need to ask the Lord to enlarge our hearts in that sense. Well, these sailors, they cast lots. They find out Jonah, he's the guilty party. So they do this interrogation, right? You see there in verse 8, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where did you come from? What is your country? What people are you? You know, answer us. We're trying to figure this out. We're trying to solve these problems. And Jonah says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. I mean, you kind of got to laugh at that, don't you? There's, there's some humor there. No, you don't, man. I mean, he's got a lot of knowledge. Jonah's got a lot of knowledge. He's got an orthodox confession of faith right here. Every faithful Jew would have said yes and amen. It's all true. But his life is out of step with his profession. Spiritual decline, you start seeing it too. When, when people, oh yeah, they can, they can talk the talk. But then, mm, yeah, well, it's not really aligned with, my life isn't really aligned with it. Notice that these men were first afraid, they were afraid of dying in the storm, but we see God here at work. We see him even using this great storm, hurling this great storm upon Jonah, not, for not only for judgment, but to bring about the salvation of these sailors. God is at work even through this prophetic word of Jonah that they hear about the Lord. See, Jonah was told to go prophesy, and actually, he's, he's speaking here like a prophet. Maybe reluctantly, maybe in shame, but the Lord's accomplishing his purposes. And then this storm. God is using both his word and these circumstances to bring about a change of heart in these sailors, as well as a change in their dire situation. But it happens only after Jonah's cast into the sea. As the storm picks up this intensity, verse 11 these sailors asked Jonah, what shall we do to you? 
What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? I mean, this is, this is kind of like the Old Testament version of what must we do to be saved? Like, what are we going to do to get out of this mess? We're going to die. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Verse 12, he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Jonah gives them, this is the way out. Chuck me into the sea. I mean, it's hard to understand. Is Jonah actually... Is there something noble going on there that he's saying, yeah, this is the only way out? Or is it Jonah actually hates the Ninevites so much he'd rather not even turn around. He'd just get chucked into the sea. Maybe it's a little bit of both. But there's some irony here. These idolatrous sailors, these are not God-fears. They're idolatrous men, as we saw earlier. They're calling out to their gods. But these men, even these men, they have compassion on Jonah. Uh, They want to save his life, yeah, they want to save their own, but like, I don't want to be guilty of some bloodshed. Like, I don't know. What do we do? Their hearts are actually, ironically, a little bit more aligned with the Lord's heart at this place than, than Jonah's. Sometimes it's the case that the Lord would use maybe even unbelievers or immature believers to expose the spiritual decline of those who should know better. And so let this be an encouragement. There's lots of new Christians here that actually as you continue on with the Lord, it does a great work among the mature here as well. But even as this was probably this genuine maybe act of compassion mixed with some self-preservation, we see their efforts, again, they're in vain. God is making it very clear to these men. You can try all you want. All you want. And the judgment's not going to go away. You know, create your own way out. You can row. Keep rowing. Row, row, row your boat. Merrily through the sea. It's not going to do anything. God is making it very clear that there is one way, one way for there to be peace on the sea. Notice the response of these sailors. I mean, it's fascinating there in verse 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I mean, these idolatrous men, in a matter of only a few moments, were transformed into those who worshiped the one true and living God. Even through the word of Jonah, through the waves that the Lord had orchestrated, God had brought these sailors from a fear of death to an exceedingly great fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? It's a great posture of humility before the Lord that then turns into a zeal to obey Him. 
to even offer sacrifices, to make vows. I'll follow you, Lord. And then to keep them. I think it's evident that these sailors were, were saved. Again, people debate about, well, were they just kind of adding to their pantheon of gods? I, I think it's very evident here that these sailors turn from a fear of death and their idolatry to a true fear of the Lord. It's an act of faith. They're calling out for salvation. And it's marked by offering sacrifices to the Lord and making vows. That's the mark of a true Christian. But notice that after Jonah had been tossed over the board, that not only did their hearts and their posture before the Lord change, but actually their dire situation was instantly changed as well. You see that? They toss Jonah, verse 15, they pick him up, they hurl him into the sea. Jonah's in judgment, and the sea ceased from its raging. I mean, I don't know about you, but I can't help but seeing a connection to another storm on another sea with a group of people where there's a man asleep in the boat. Jesus and his disciples in Mark chapter 4, if you want to turn there with me. Mark chapter 4, Jesus had just been teaching these parables. We see his prophetic ministry. And in Mark chapter 4, Beginning there in verse 37. It says, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? I mean, the parallels there are so clear. I think it's so clear that Mark intended for us, when we're reading that in Mark 4, to think back to something like Jonah. Jesus asleep on the boat. Disciples waking Jesus, the calming of the sea, the questions, the turning from fear of death to great fear of the Lord. All the pieces are there. The parallels are there. But there's a great contrast as well. There's a great contrast. That's why the New Testament speaks of one who is greater than Jonah. One who is far superior to Jonah. Oh yeah, Jonah's a prophet. But Jonah's actually a massive failure. He's a massive failure. Jesus isn't asleep on this boat because he's indifferent to God. No, Jesus is the one who fulfills his Father's will in all things and with great joy. He goes to sinners and tax collectors. He's not running from God. He's asleep because he is the Lord of the sea. He can sleep while simultaneously he's the one causing the waves and the, and the wind to churn around him. He is the Lord. And the proof of his authority is that with words he calms the sea. 
He speaks a word of peace, and it happens. The words that stick out to me in that section, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care that we're perishing? <laughs> I think Jesus would probably just be like, oh, you people, like, you still don't get it, right? Like, how many times have I cared for you? How many times have I protected you? Of course, the words were immensely comforting. But later, the work that he would accomplish would be that which would actually accomplish peace within their soul. Yeah, he can calm the sea with his words. Jesus doesn't just calm storms. You want to know how much he cares for the perishing? He jumps into the sea. The cross of God's wrath, and he takes it. The full brunt, your sins, my sins. Jonah's a guilty man. He deserves judgment. Christ, no, no judgment. He doesn't deserve judgment. He's the obedient prophet. And yet, we see his great care for those who are perishing and that he's flung upon a cross. Yes, indeed, even as the sailors said, O Lord, you have done as it pleased you. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It is pleasing in God's sight and it is pleasing in the sight of even the Savior to take upon himself the sins of his people. And by that, then, Christ not only transforms our hearts to fear him, he actually instantly changes our situation. From one where, where death is terrifying, judgment is imminent, to where we are at peace, even with him. See, Jonah needed to be gripped by the grace of God because he was in spiritual decline. Israel needed the same warning. I think we do as well. The greatest antidote then to spiritual decline is for you to be refreshed and to be gripped by the exceedingly deep and wide mercy of our Savior. You're not going to continue on just by the sheer power of your will. You need to be captivated by something far greater. Far greater. The mercy of God. And so as we consider that, then just two quick questions as we close. The wind and the sea obey Jesus' word. These pagan sailors obeyed the word. The question is, will you come under his word and obey him? Very simple question. Secondly, we need to recognize that God has orchestrated events in your lives right now, even the very trials of your life, to bring you to an exceedingly great fear of him. Are you awake then to the powerful word of Christ and to his exceedingly deep love for you. You've got to be awake to it. Perhaps maybe you need to set aside some time, even this week, 
away from the distractions, and you just need to simply reflect on God's kindness and saving you. It sounds so elementary, but honestly, the more we consider the immense mercy of God, the more our hearts are going to become like His, and the more we will fear Him. That's what's going to put wind in the sails. That's what's going to empower a new obedience and resolve for you even to offer your own bodies as living sacrifices and to fulfill the vows even that you've made to the Lord. Let's pray. So Father, we ask for your help by the Spirit that we would be marked by an awareness of how deep and wide and long your love and mercy is for us in Christ Jesus. If there be any here who do not know Christ, who are striving and seeking to find some other way to deal with judgment, would you bring them to the end of themselves? Orchestrate whatever circumstances are necessary for us in our lives to bring us to repentance and true fear of you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond in song. Just a reminder that right after uh, the service in the fellowship hall in the basement, there's a newcomer's lunch. Pastor Clint and his family will be there. So if you're a newcomer, if you're new to Calvary Grace, please go down there and, uh, and there'll be a, a meal down there for you. As we conclude the service in Ephesians 3, I just... For those of you here, there's many people from all sorts of situations and circumstances and storms of life. Consider what the Lord is doing right here. Consider what He's maybe telling, trying to tell you in the circumstances that He's brought you into. But consider most of all, consider most of all this. This is my prayer for you, for us this morning. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That, friends... That is how we make progress. We consider that. Go in peace. You're dismissed.